Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to Not Knowing About Poetry, a podcast where we think about how the writings of the past help people to make the ideas of the future. As usual, you're listening to me, Joel Swan, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Mao Bayoko. Mao has published poetry and criticism in lots of different venues, including Moat, Spam, and Tenebre, and recently the mutual aid anthology Ludgang. In the last few weeks, he's also released a collaborative collection of Sonnets for Hooch, a fantastic title with Kyle Lovell and Maria Sledmere, published by Fathomsome Press. My copy just arrived in the last couple of days, so I'm really looking forward to getting into that. Obviously, all the people who come on this podcast, I'm excited to talk to and delighted to have here. Maybe I'm especially excited about having Mao on because they are actually currently working on an essay on the way that Rob Halpern, the American poet, responds to John Donne. So pretty much unlike everyone that I've talked to so far, their existing interests match the work that I've been doing, which um, I don't know, I'm I'm really excited about. Um, I just wonder, Mel, do you want to say anything about that right now? What What is it you're up to with Rob Halpern and John Donne? Um, I'd love to know just a little bit. So I have a large kind of like recreational dash semi-serious research project on Baroque poetics and the Baroque era. And that kind of like dovetails into like this, this early modern period. So I've been working on a radio show on No Bounce Radio called Selections from the Baroque. And it broadcasts about once every two months, sort of irregularly. And the Halpern Don essay is like an offshoot of that, like a more serious writing down of ideas uh, between that. I'm I'm interested in modern writers and contemporary writers dealing with the Baroque ideas around what the Baroque is as a genre or a style. And yeah, Rob Halpern, Lisa Robertson, et cetera, are all very interested in the question right now. Yeah, that, that that does sound really interesting, and um, I I don't know. It, I'm really annoyed that I haven't listened to this radio show, and actually somehow I, I didn't know it existed. What was the name again, so that we we can all go and listen to it well, after this? Selections from the Baroque. Um, it's on No Bounds Radio, which is a wonderful DIY radio station dash community. Um, you can most easily find them through Instagram, actually. Yes, lots of things. But they, I think they have a proper website. Okay, that's that's really good to know about. And I'm looking forward to getting into that. Okay, so uh, today we're having another episode of the podcast, which is looking into sonnets. I think this is the third one we've done so far. And I remember about five years ago, the Carcanet New Poetries Collection noted a current vogue for using sonnets. But more recently, Danez Smith and Franny Choi have talked about the end of that moment in their Versus podcast. And I'm not up on all the, the sonnet chat, but those are just two points that have stuck in my mind. In spite of that um, pronouncement from, from Smith and Choi, new sonnets and new responses to old sonnets seem to be coming along quite forcefully. And uh, Luke Kennard's very recent notes on the sonnets gives one example of a highly sustained reading of Shakespeare's work. And um, that's not the only example we could we could dig up. 
But for a little bit, just to, just to reflect a moment on the sonnet, I can't think of a more useful point of reference than J.H. Prynne's recent pamphlet from Critical Documents, which is called Otherhood Imminent Profusion. And as I read through that pamphlet, I was really struck by a few lines towards the end of it, um, where he seems to, to comment relatively directly on, on the sonnet form. And what he says there is, lift bread into stead muddied all, well done, watershed, alive, loving in privatise, perforate turbine, sun, burnt sonnet, apply, turn up, book in pother on tether, apple, brother. Lots of little phrases in there that just seem really, really striking. Um, the sonnet as a sunburnt form. Um, is that the kind of burning that you get from being um, too exposed to a child in some way? And I'm, I'm sorry, it's S-O-N burnt, not S-U-N burnt. Um, the sonnet as a form where you apply, turn up. Um, is that you mean you make an application and then you turn up to do a job? Or is it uh, an imperative that you've got to apply the turn up, like you imply suntan lotion? What did you pick out in that short quotation, Mal, that might be interesting for what we're thinking about today and maybe is more intelligent than the uh, the hurried ideas that I've got together? Oh, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't expect that much of myself or anyone else going into print. But what, what stood out for me was this, this idea of loving in private ties and this idea that the sonnets are a private register or, or like a kind of like directed an address to one person, an address to one person made by one person in, in one circumstance. And there's always been, yeah, there's always been a bit of that in the sonnet, but there's also been like, it's, con it's constant like subversion by the way sonnets are circulated, read, recycled, used, like, a bit like the turbine in, in the fragment. Okay, that's such an interesting um, phrase. I'm really glad you've picked that out because I was sort of puzzled by that phrase, loving in privatise. And maybe what I was thrown off by is that the words privatise, you know, that is quite different from like private, isn't it? So, um, you know, just thinking even back to like uh, the oval window, you know, Prin's got quite a lot to say about the NHS. Um, when we hear the, when I hear the word privatise, I think about privatisation of, 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 of things. Um, so loving and privatise, yeah, the sonnet's definitely a, a private form. Uh, and maybe that that um, that that phrase actually, I, I feel it might recall Sydney's sonnet sequence, Astrophil and Stella, uh, loving in truth and fain in truth, my, my love to show. Maybe it's a sense that that private loving takes place in some kind of political economic context. Um, would, yeah. would that be a would that be a nice point to resolve on before we move on? Yeah. Or do you want to pop and, something else? And it's in? a and it's a great point to jump off on towards the Critchley and Langley sonnets we'll be dealing with today because they they are interactions between back written back and forth between poets about these sonnets. So they are already by their very form and sort of gesture of creation. They're already trying to think of sonnets as non-private or non-privatized. So I'm excited. 
Okay, fantastic. All right. Well, thanks for indulging that little that little introduction. As I say, you know, no clearer statement about the fortunes of the sonnet than in uh, Otherhood Imminent Profusion. Um, oh, every time I just love reading about Prim. All right. Well, let's get into some reading and talking and, and finding out about poetry. Um, so you've mentioned the, the names of the poets we're, we're talking about today, which somehow I've forgotten to do so far. It is Emily Critchley and Eric Langley. And um, wherever we are with the sonnet form, let's set out by doing some reading of these, these texts. And today I think... Um, We'll try something a little bit different because usually on the podcast we read the old text then talk about it and then read the new text then talk about it. We will keep that order um, but we're actually going to do a slightly more extended bit of reading from Critchley and Langley and we'll read them alongside the Shakespeare sonnets. So the, the, the sonnets written recently respond very closely to the Shakespeare sonnets. So we will be... Um, you know, able to sort of just tease out some patterns maybe in our minds just by reading them alongside one another. Um, so I think that, you know, that's quite an interesting thing that I'm, I'm looking forward to doing. So, um, of course, the Shakespeare texts we're going to be talking about uh, are so widely described and talked about that we, we don't really need to give them an introduction here. The work by Critchley and Langley is rather less well known. So let's just take a moment to foreground those writers and their publications a little bit. Eagle-eared listeners familiar with the name will be interested to know that Eric Langley is the son of R.F. Langley. And although Eric has only been releasing poetry for a few years, he seems to have managed to, to have achieved some distinction in that time. Um, publication in the Carcanet New Poetries a few years back. Uh, then the collection Raking Light from Carcanet, which was shortlisted in one Ford Prize category. A pamphlet De Gausser from Equipage as, uh, or is it Equipage, whichever, as well as this rather interesting collaboration with Emily Critchley. Langley's literary credentials are perhaps better established in the early modern field of scholarship. He's got books out on Shakespeare and he, he lectures for his job on early modern literature. And that expertise does come out in his quirky comments and references to Hamlet and Dunn and Herbert, as well as rather less celebrated early modern works by Stephen Gosson and Lucretius in translation. So that's Langley. But we'll also be reading Emily Critchley today, who has got a much more established reputation as a poet, as demonstrated by a whole string of pamphlets and books out with prominent presses. She's also a scholar of women's contributions to innovative poetry in the 20th century. So, and I said, she's also a scholar. You know, she's, she's an extremely uh, well-regarded scholar in, in that field as well. Um, I have not explored her work in the depth that it clearly deserves. Uh, it is interesting to note that she's got a long-standing interest in the sonnet form, going back at least to 2011's Sonnets for Luke. Um, and I wonder, Mal, you have been reading a bit of Emily Critchley recently. I just wonder what you make of her, her work outside of our reading today. Do you want to get, give us a couple of comments on that? Yeah, she's just put out the book Home from Prototype Editions. Um, it just came out this year, a few weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, uh, I found it to be really different from the, the work that we'll be looking at. It's, it's kind of more lyrically grounded, um, if that means anything. By, by that, I'm essentially saying there's like a lot of 
more locutions which began be, begin with like I say something or do something but it's still quite experimental and I haven't wrapped my head around everything um, what I will say is that it's very politically engaged around questions of belonging and and family um, which is yeah and I think family and reproduction are topics that are also in the sonnets so those are worth keeping an eye out or an ear out for all right so that's Langley that's Critchley um both you know really doing great work in their own right but over the last few years I, I don't know how many years but uh they've been working together on a series of responses to Shakespeare sonnets that they've been releasing in piecemeal form and so far they've released, as far as I can tell, calls and responses in their terminology to, I think, 17 of Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, and they've taken those from across the, the collection of early modern, of, of, sorry, of Shakespeare's sonnets. Uh, and they've published those in three venues, 3AM, Black Box Manifold, and the very nicely presented pamphlet from Crater Press, These Ensuing Sonnets, uh, from 2019, which is what we're going to be working with today. I'm not quite sure what the origin or the destiny of the project is, but the sheer richness and idiosyncrasies of each and every response already gives a lot for readers to work with. So 17 sonnets they dealt with, that doesn't sound like a lot in comparison to like Luke Kennard, but I just think there's, there's, there's great stuff here to be to be working on. So Let's get into a bit of reading and see what these sonnets are like. And we're going to read the, the first four sonnets that Critchley and Langley call and response to. That's one, number one, number two, number seven, and number 15. And I think, Mal, when you're ready, you're going to kick us off with, sonnet, with Shakespeare's sonnet number one. And we'll take it in turns to read a sort of section of text. So it'll be Shakespeare, then then uh, Critchley, then Langley. Um, and let's just see how that goes. Does that sound okay? Um, this is Shakespeare's Sonnet 1. From fairest creatures we desire increase, that thereby beauty's rose might never die. But as the riper shall by time decease, his tender hair might bear his memory. But thou, contracted to thine own bright eyes, feeds thy light's flame with self-substantial feel, making a famine where abundance lies. Thyself thy foe, to thy sweet self to cruel, thou that art now the world's fresh ornament, and only herald to the gaudy spring, within thine own bud buries thy content, and, tender churled, makest waste in niggarding, Pity the world, or else this gluten be, to eat the world's dew by the grave and thee. Contracted to thine own bright eyes, this is Emily Critchley. From brightest beams falls out desire, and to prompt our heads ripening, not bumping below bliss. Clear eye and lip, drops and angling, pulls out the love contract, but never would sign about lust, grasp it a no-go, see him for dust, the cut, the little twist, the ungrasp, all intricately bound in him, around him, over, never a backward thought or behind, pulled by other things is better and out of sight, 
likes which thistle-like require no constant. Change without light wins. Objects are not people, but at the start, who realizes? Ha! This is the Langley. You tap for an outset and startled, yes, you get meniscus hop, high strung to pop, eager and up, clasped at your fingertips. And it is ripe, hot and unexpected but can't stop to send out shivers, shivers on the surface as teardrops hit the ribs and send me down, scattered too soon, perhaps too over all, some blistery skin graft. We moved and moved together in the pool, too soon to ask for actual alterity. Best results in identical cloning Best in the corneal clothing of your eye, of our eyes. Can't we start cruel from the self-fed burn of such our sweet and simple feel as uncontracted subjects? So Mal, thanks for taking the time to read those through together. Um, and it's always just nice to do that to kind of remind us of that initial reading experience that sort of sense of immediate response because so often with this these sonnets in this collection and, and in the other Christian language sonnets I just feel so interested in what's going on but I feel so totally confused by by it as well I feel like there's even though we've set up a really clear relationship here's sonnet one here's a call here's a response surely it would be easy to compare and contrast and see connections. But to me, even now I've studied it quite deeply or intensively, whether or not deeply, I'm still interested, but confused. Yeah, um, I will confess, it took me many readings of this pairings be before I could begin to get anything out of them in the sense that you will get like a theme or an inquiry in inside one of them what I first got was like the voice and some words that just stood out like sounds rhythms and the sense that words were being taken from the sonnet and then taken into a response and then that response had words in turn taken into other ones so there's like even even if you don't like <laughs> get too deep into them there is like a good pleasure of like communication happening in them that gave me enough to want to get keep coming back yeah I think that feels like we're on the same page and that's always a relief that um uh, someone else is you know enjoy enjoying that difficulty um so let's go back to Shakespeare in that case and Shall I just reread Sonnet One, and then we could just talk about what's going on, and then maybe we've got some materials to get into to Critchley and Langley a bit more. Does that sound okay? So, just to remind us about Sonnet One, which which Mal read so nicely before, from fairest creatures we desire increase, that thereby beauty's rose might never die, but as the riper should by time decease, his tender air might bear his memory. But thou, contracted to thine own bright eyes, feeds thy light's flame with self-substantial fuel, making a famine where abundance lies. Thyself thy foe to thy sweet self too cruel. 
Thou that art now the world's fresh ornament and only heralds of the gaudy spring, within thine own bud buriest thy content, and tender churl makes waste in niggarding. Pity the world, or else this glutton be, to eat the world's dew by the grave and thee. So, sort of just having a look at this, thinking about what it's about. I'm feeling like, you know, that theme of beauty, that seems like a reasonable idea as sort of the main topic for this sonnet and for many of this opening series of, of, of sonnets, um, together with its fears about, the, about death and time, overlapping with all sorts of other things. Do you think it's fair to say that beauty's at the heart of this poem, or, or am I just being distracted because that's what I want to to see there? Yeah, I will agree that beauty's emphasized earlier on that thereby beauty's rose might never die um, stands out right from the off. I think it's about beauty, but it never quite tells you what beauty is, and it's more concerned with like beauty's preservation and the the kind of threat being posed to beauty by bodily corruption and change and time. So all these are very traditional sonnet concepts and pretty much established in these very sonnets. So it's the point of origin of a certain way of thinking and speaking about beauty, I feel. And I think that that idea that it doesn't it doesn't actually want to tell us what beauty is, just wants to be worried about like this quite abstract idea um, of something that we sh- that shouldn't, shouldn't die, that should be preserved. Um, and maybe that's signalled in an interesting way that beauty comes, the word comes up once in the second line, but then it seems to sh- change to, to light, to abundance, to sweetness, to the world's fresh ornament, to herald and to, to content, which... Are concepts that are all very nice, but aren't obviously identical with, with beauty. So I guess either you could see that as a kind of vagueness, or you could see it as uh, bringing together all these ideas into one concept, beauty, that maybe is is a bit bigger than like a sort of limited aesthetic, physical, physical thing. It's sort of all of these amazing things or at least amazing in in sort of Shakespeare's head okay and I think maybe the other thing to 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 mention as well isn't it that like you can say this is a poem about beauty but it's really really quite an odd idea um okay so the idea of beauty yeah we're happy with that idea of beauty dying yeah that's fairly regular but the idea of beauty dying so you've got to go and procreate um that's quite a, a, an interesting or unusual sort of sort of reading of that that situation, uh, and maybe just sort of starting with the first few lines. I mean, what kind of imagery do you see as coming in that could be interesting for the sonnet, or, or interesting looking forwards to the um, Critchley and Langley? Um, how is this idea of beauty getting set up? around a language of metaphor that that might be interesting for us? What what stood out to me with regards to beauties are are these two words that get clustered alongside it at times, uh, increase and contract. Like there seems to be like an economistic (laughs) relation to beauty here. Beauty as a kind of personal property that is like, 
spread by true inheritance, essentially, and in that sense becomes potentially an object or a commodity like others to be preserved and traded or, yeah, uh, or circulated among, like, <laughs> a specific group of people or a family. And the, the fact that Shakespeare goes for that commercial language so early on, this, <laughs> this language of, like, bountiful harvests and, like, loads of produce and whatnot so early on in the sequence um, is quite striking to me. Absolutely. And and yes, yeah, so increase in the first line. And then we, we might get, you know, distracted by the, the organic imagery in the second and third lines about beauty's rose and and, and getting riper. Um, but then in line four, like sort of talking about the tender air, it feels to bring a few of those things together, like the air uh, of, a, I don't know, is, is, is that a horticultural term? Can you talk about the air of a flower, the offspring of uh, or the grafting of a flower into a new one is that an appropriate use of that but also uh, obviously in in financial terms um and and biological terms as well so increase yeah put into a really interesting relationship with those words and mentioning contract does move us onto the second quatrain as well doesn't it that that's where it comes in contracted to thine own bright eyes so we desire increase but you're contracted you're you're shrunk, you're, you're married, um, you've got a commercial deal with your, your own bright eyes that uh, is apparently not so, uh, you know, likeable for, for, the, for the speaker of these, these sonnets. And maybe in, I'm just sort of looking at the second quatrain now and I'm wondering about that, that phrase like self-substantial fuel, which seems like such an odd phrase. That's the sort of thing that caught my eye in that second part was that a folk did you did you pick up on that or is there anything else in in that sort of lines four to sorry five to eight that you think is worth worth talking about yeah no i i think this quatrain introduces like ideas of say um corruption but genetic corruption in a sense so contracted to thine own bright eyes lights flame with self-substantial feel and then making famine where abundance lies. Um, it all seems to me like so long as the person being addressed to in the sonnet keeps regarding their own beauty and not, and not reproducing it somehow through procreation, um, it means that there, something happens to like that beauty and that, you know, natural stock that person has in beauty mm -hmm. kind of degrades. I think I think there are topics around like miscegenation coming through here and especially with the word famine, like the, the sense that the sense that this will become lacking um, <laughs> because when there is presently an abundance and that this is down to like one's own self-regarding actions and not partaking in, say, a regular sexual reproductive process. And famine, yeah, famine seems seems to be a point where you get quite, it's quite a severe register. I mean, like, so to say you're contracted to their own bright eyes, all right, it's metaphorical language, it's saying you, you're limited to yourself in some way. Um, but, you know, famine in a, in a time where people would, would know about food scarcity, um, 
it's 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 stepping things up a little bit and getting us into a language of of husbandry and uh, sorry in 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 the, the sense of looking after crops and looking after looking after a state um as well as uh you know you know the language of of, of law and 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 morality um so then, okay, so then we go on to, into the, to the third quatrain where he says, Thou that art now the world's fresh ornament and only herald to the gaudy spring, within thine own buds buriest thy content and tender churl makes waste in niggarding. Um, so we've sort of, we're sort of now moving towards the, the conclusion of the sonnet and, um, you know, starting to kind of offer a resolution or, or a conclusion. And... I just felt the introduction then of like this idea of the world's fresh ornament really did strike me, whereas it felt like we're building up this, this kind of imagery of flowers, of agriculture, as, as well as the, 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 the commercial contracts of all going together. Fresh ornament seems to come out of, of nowhere as a sort of um, quite artificial statement, uh, you know, a, a manufactured thing. Um, and maybe just struck me that is there a relation, is the poem setting up a relationship between like the organic and the manufactured or the organic and the artificial um, through those, that sort of development? Do you feel I've, I've got it right there, Mal, or do you think I'm sort of barking <laughs> at the wrong tree? No, I, I think it's interesting that you get ornament and flower because flowers are definitely not ornaments. They're like the sexual organ of the plants <laughs> where reproduction happens. So already when you're speaking of them as ornaments, you're already like removing them from biological function and ascribing to them this like idealized kind of platonic beauty um, to them. So I think it's by shifting from flower to ornament and then that line of in thine own bud buries thy content. Um, it's it's kind of exploring that tension a little bit. Um, so finally, the poem ends, pity the world or else this glutton be to eat the world's dew by the grave and the... I don't know. I think it's interesting here getting into the idea of pity. It just feels like every line's bringing in kind of a new idea or a new instruction, uh, a new kind of register. Um, I think bringing in the idea of the world feels like quite an interesting way to to depersonalize this in a sort of obviously ridiculous way. Shakespeare seems to be saying that the world is due this beauty, and he's going to pull no stops in ensuring this man reproduces and spreads his beauty around. And he does so for the next 14 sonnets. Like, that's one thing to remember. He, he repeats this command that this person needs to reproduce for 14 sonnets. And, <laughs> and I think that's, that's a way of making, like, a kind of, like, global claim upon like what this man needs to inherit and obviously when you bring in the world um, that also brings in quite difficult subtexts and idea of who is meant to populate the world <laughs> and like what kind of view of reproduction is being like called for in the world um, so 
yeah, I think of this also as like a problematic text in, in like an era where, you know, racial and national discourses were first being formed. Back to Critchley and Langley. So it's Emily Critchley who writes the first poem in this collection, These Ensuing Sonnets. Um, and that's sort of the, the call to, to Langley's response, uh, the call to which Langley will respond. Um, Mal, do you want to do you want to read it again for us? I'm sorry to keep rereading stuff, but it feels like a good idea with such challenging poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as I read it, watch out for the words desire, ripe, eye, contract, light, which are all pulled from the Shakespeare. And this poem seems to be organizing itself around. So it reads, contracted to thine own bright eyes. From brightest beams falls out desire, and to prompt our heads ripening, not bumping below bliss, clear eye and lip, drops and angling, pulls out the love contract, but never would sign, about lust, grasp it, a no-go, see him for dust, the cut, the little twist, the ungrasp, all intricately bound in him, around him, over, never a backward thought or behind, pulled by other things is better and out of sight. Likes which thistle-like require no constant, change without light, winds. Objects are not people, but at the start who realizes, ha! <laughs> I love those lines, objects are not people, but at the start who realizes. Ha. And... Uh, yeah, and, and ha, sorry, I forgot about that. And of course, what, what we are doing here, um, which I think we've, we've discussed previously, is um, really thematizing the idea of the start of a sonnet sequence and the idea of origins, um, which maybe wasn't in there so much in the Shakespeare sonnet. He wasn't so interested in, in an origin or a start as he was in the future. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, you're, you, you, you're a writer of sonnets yourself, uh, as well as a, a reader of them. What do you think about the importance of the start of a, a sonnet sequence or the, or the idea of the start in poetry at all? Yeah, um, I, have, I, I have the starts of sonnet sequences as like extremely metapoetic moments. And Nowhere more exemplified than in Astrophil and Stella, like look into thy heart and write, uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so I, I, I found the fact that Shakespeare begins his sequence with, <laughs> with like this in such an initial and unorthodox way by just straightforwardly imploring this man to reproduce. Um, to be quite different from and already breaking a bit with like the, the self-reflexive conventions around the first sonnet. But then the fact that, but at the start who realizes uh, it's being mentioned by Critchley here kind of brings that sense back. Okay, so so they're, they're, they're holding Shakespeare to, to what he's meant to be doing, which is like... <laughs> Um, commenting on the on the form itself, and I mean, I think one of the one interesting way into these two two poems that Critchley Langley have written is 
to think about, you know, the, the sort of start that they're talking about. So um, from, from brightest beams falls out desire and to prompt our heads ripening, not bumping below bliss, clear eye and lip drops and angling, pulls out the love contract, but never would sign. So I've, I've sort of stopped at that line, never would sign, because that seems like a, an end or a um, conclusion to something. I don't know, maybe signing a contract is a start of something, mm. but perhaps this is suggesting that that, that would be an end. Um I'm not sure. Is 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 is, is the sort of starts? Is is that an interesting way to read the first few lines there, Mal? What do you um, think? Yeah, I think it's interesting that it begins with natural processes and then introduces the contract. Whereas Shakespeare wants to, in a sense, break the the contract between the man and himself and, and reestablish another contract. So yeah, I found I found quite interesting that you build up to a contract here, whereas in Shakespeare, everything is like in kind of legalistic terms from the start, like, oh, from fairest creatures, we desire increase. Like, that's almost like a legal demand. Um, you could say, <laughs> you could say it's if someone is hiking your rent, they will desire increase. <laughs> that's what it calls into my my head, in a sense. So, and and I think, yeah, what I find um, interesting that line, from brightest beams falls out to desire. Maybe just thinking about your sense of Shakespeare putting contracts on the table from the very very beginning. Um, from brightest beams falls out to desire. In some ways, this feels like a really direct response. Well, okay, it is a really direct rereading of Shakespeare, isn't it? When we look at Shakespeare from fairest creatures, we desire increase. Now, increase, that's not so much an object as it is a process, but it feels like desires working in a relatively directional way. Like we know what we desire and it's increase and it's it's however we perceive increase, whether it's as an erection or uh, a developing of our commercial interests or as, uh, you know, getting a child, that's what we want. In Critchley, from brightest beams falls out desire. So whatever we think of beams as being, beams of light, um, I don't know, somehow, you know, I connect that with sort of seeing as well. Um, from Vitus Visions, desire is something that falls out. Desire is kind of an excess. It's something that's a bit inconvenient and unexpected and, uh, you know, maybe leads to this bumping, uh, that, that great verb, maybe leads to a kind of angling for, for something. Um, but desire doesn't sign. So maybe my my feeling is we've moved from sort of beauty as being the key idea in Shakespeare to desire being the key idea. I don't know. I'm just trying. I'm just trying that out, really, Mal. <laughs> if I I, but I I feel like it, that helps me make sense of it. 
Yeah, and you picked out the fact that false out desire seems to be speaking of like an abundance of desire. It's not the logic of scarcity, like desire needs to be increased or else it's imperiled. It's instead it's mm-hmm. like looking at desire as something that literally falls out of you know nature and all this kind of like natural erotic imagery that follows it, then the bump ripening, not bumping below bliss, and drops and angling pulls out. Pulls out is like an expansive <laughs> gesture, but it's like it's not the increase in Shakespeare's sonnet, which is like linear by succession. It's like lateral, it's like spreading out like water in all directions. And yeah, so I find that way of imagining desire to be <laughs> to be quite compelling. Yeah, and 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 pulls out, pulls out. Um, so it's it's a very clear follow-on from falls out. Um, oh, so so odd. Okay, but you, I think you've also sort from what you said, it, that does push us on to the kind of the next bit where, uh, like, we get sort of some. I don't know, what I'd see is quite Prin-like imperatives, like grasp it a no-go, see him for dust, the cut, the little twist, the ungrasp, all intricately bound in him, around him, over. I feel like I feel like this is stuff getting some into some of the, the the themes and ideas that you're kind of most interested in here. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, there, there is a lot of like conscious manipulation going on here. And and the manipulation that I'm interested in is what might be thought of as grafting and as putting things together and reproducing and making um, this this kind of like different subjects. Um, and are they the uncontracted subjects that the poems later speak of? But I I find I find that there is a sense of like mutant desire of things being cutted, pasted, grafted, organized, bound in him, around him, over. Um, that it's it's like it goes in many different directions. And yeah. <laughs> and I think from, from from sort of reading this again a few times, I sort of I've got into feeling like um you know, at this point, they're sort of talking about desire or lust, like grasp it, the it is is lust or desire. And then when they're talking about the cut, the little twist, the ungrasp, are those, is that talking about desire? Or is that talking about lust? Um, offering synonyms for, for those things. Yeah, it, it could be like talking about sex as well, <laughs> like the the kind of like physical motions involved uh, and all the bits of the body one grasps onto. I guess, yeah. Um, I find the 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 bit which is like all intricately bound in him around him to be like such a compelling line uh, because it seems on the face of it contradictory like what what is in in him that is also around him but that that seems to be like quite a a nice rendering of desire as something that you find in people and around people um, in a sense yeah why does why does it end with the word ha Mm. (laughs) 
Yeah. I it's <laughs> it feels yeah, it's it's easy to miss the ha because like on the page it's quite spaced out from 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 the other words. Um yeah. Objects are not people, but at the start who realizes ha. Uh maybe it's acknowledging that you know a degree of objectification is like what happens at the start of desire, and and then it's something that you work through and over and out. Um, maybe, maybe that's, that's kind of the self-aware moment to start the sequence, like moving from like the realm of objects and contracts to like a realm of more freely floating and sort of like desire that gets attached, inscribed and reinscribed. Um, that might be, that might be what the ha is up to, but I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I think maybe it does just speak to a tone that perhaps Critchley and Langley have got in common of just being quite, like, I don't want to use the word cheeky, like just playful, um, you know, quite, obviously quite serious, but also quite, um, you know, trying to have fun as well. I hate to say that because, you know, I, I don't come to poetry for fun. Like, if, if, if I wanted to have a fun life, I'd, I'd, I'd have done some other things instead. Um, and it's maybe one, it's actually maybe one of the things that I find confusing about the poetry, that it seems to have this, 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 this aspect of levity that um, goes with the, this, the seriousness and the, the intelligence that, Okay, I, I'm just. This is just a fancy way of me saying I don't really, I don't really know, but it it does seem sort of characteristic of of, of both their contributions to to the collection. Now, I feel like we certainly haven't sort of wrapped up Emily Critchley's introduction. Having got to her, shall we have a go, at Eric Langley's response? So we've we've got Emily Critchley doing a call based on Shakespeare, and then Eric Langley doing a, a response. I guess based on Shakespeare and Emily Critchley. Um, do you fancy just reading it again for us, and then maybe we could talk about it, or do you think we need to say more about Emily Critchley before we do? Oh uh, no, let's let's read this and talk about them both together. Yeah. So this is the Langley response to Critchley's call. You tap for an outset and startled. Yes, you get meniscus hop. High strung to pop, eager and up, clasped at your fingertips. And it's ripe, hot and unexpected, but can't stop to send out shivers, shivers on the surface as teardrops hit the ribs and send me down, scattered too soon, perhaps to overall some blistery skin graft. We moved and moved together in the pool, too soon to ask for actual alterity. Best results in identical cloning, best in the corneal clothing of our eyes. Can't we start, curl from the self-fed burn of such our sweet and simple feel as uncontracted subjects? If it feels like by by talking about the first, by Critchley's poem in terms of the start, it feels like that's something that Langley's picking right up again and maybe more explicitly even when he says, you tap for an outset. 
So we're going back to sort of the the bumping in the previous poem. Uh, you you tapped and you're you're startled. Um, what is what is meniscus hop? Could you tell us that you get meniscus hop? That's what happens when you tap for an outset. You get meniscus hop. Okay, so it is in the knee. Um, the meniscus is in the knee. Um, I'm not sure precisely where it is in the knee. Uh, such a complicated <laughs> part of our bodies. But yeah, I feel like I feel like it's describing maybe touching someone else's knee, um, maybe like grabbing someone else's knee, which is quite erotic. And if you touch your own knees, you can sense that things pop and kind of shake and release if you move your hand around your knee. And I feel like it's probably dramatizing um, having one's knee held by someone else's hand um, as this moment of discovery, like, and startled. Yes, you get meniscus hop. <laughs> and there's like a playfulness there as well because like it seems that the sounds are repeated and inverted and modulated like high strung to pop and rhyming hop with pop is quite funny to me so I think I think there is something like quite playful and joyful about like this <laughs> this physical contact yeah, and then um, sort of going into eager and up, clasped at your fingertips. Like with eager and up, we're, we're kind of back to the increase of Shakespeare, um, and and maybe with this, the the idea of an erection as well. Um, you know, that's not what he's saying explicitly, but um, <laughs> it is right, all these... hot and unexpected. That sounds quite phallic. Right, and that and that line the. The, the ripe, hot and unexpected, just to, to sort of explain, it's it's really, really spaced out on the page. So exactly how we're meant to read that out loud, I'm not sure. But, you know, it feels like this, this slightly blue line um, where he's knowingly going into quite un unusually, lively, uh, er erotic language. It is ripe, hot and unexpected. Yeah. yeah. Which is absent from the Shakespeare that's the thing. Like for all the talk about reproduction, it, the whatever erotic language in Shakespeare there is, uh, it seems to be displaced to like this concern around seasons and death and like ornaments and abundance. Whereas here, it's all quite physical. I feel. Yeah, it's it's, it's not sort of. However, however complicated this, let's call it a knee-touching moment, however complicated the language is, it does quite quickly resolve onto like an actual erotic statement instead of just erotic language transferred to plants or planets or the weather or something. Um, it's, it's so close to an actual erotic experience that it's um, weirdly refreshing after reading Shakespeare and, and, and Critchley. Um, so does that develop as we get into sort of the the next quatrain? And, and I don't know this this is a sonnet, isn't it? It's sort of or it's close to a sonnet. We've got like sort of two. We've got oh no, it's a sonnet plus one. So we've got like three quatrains and a like a three. Oh no, it's like a quatrain, then a sort of five line stands, five line part, then three lines and three lines. Okay, I've, I've lost count. Um, but moving into the second bit, 
can't stop to send out shivers, shivers on the surface as teardrops hit the rips and send me down, scattered too soon, perhaps to o'er all some blistery skin graft. So is this carrying on with that eroticism in the first few lines? Is it taking a different direction? Yeah, I I think I think there is something natural about the way we move from like this this moment of erection to like this moment of shivering and can't stop to send out shivers shivers on the surface. Um, well, I guess what I find quite interesting is that there there is something there is something membranous about this, like speaking through a membrane, because like you you seem to be below the surface, but then the tear drops and hits the motion on the surface. And maybe I'm reading too deep into this, but I feel like it's it's taking it's it's trying to like speak of this moment from multiple angles or perspectives. And I'm still not quite sure what the tear drops. Um, it goes back to the language of like the drop and angling pulls out and things falling out like desire and hitting the ground. But it seems that it's like falling on fertile ground in a sense. Like it's already, it's falling on a surface which is already shivering and, <laughs> and a bit like membranous and excited. Um, it's not it's not falls out and makes a pull. It's falling out and falling into a resonance with like the patterns on the surface. Does <laughs> does any of that make sense? Well, you know what, it really does. And I think it, it, I was worried about this this part, but actually one of the difficulties I'm having here is like not just saying what are they getting out of Shakespeare, what, what are they getting out of each other? And it's actually so surprising to realise that the little bit that he's almost picked up from, from Emily Critchley is the stuff about pulls out, you know, drops and angling, desire drops and angling, pulls out the love contract. That's not like a, a dominant image in the in the first poem by Critchley, but that seems to be what Langley is taking up, this, this idea of um, desire as a kind of pooling, you know, as a sort, as a sort of spreading. Um, and... I think that's useful maybe because it, it, it does that, that that idea of surface just seems to be um like so ex extensive so extended but then also comes back to the blistery skin graft so whereas the the the, the pool seems very gentle you know covering lots of things we dip our toes in it shivers a little bit oh that's a bit like an orgasm or something but then the blistery skin graft feels like a a weird way to then move on from the the pool, from the pool as a membrane to the skin graft as a really horrible, different sort of membrane. I don't know what it's suggesting. I read it first as blistery skin graft. Like I failed to hear the the, the G. So I I thought well, the image in my head was like so <laughs> like two people on a piece of flesh floating by quite a surreal image, but that's what was produced. But blistery skin graft um, does bring us back to this idea of grafting together desire. And, graf and grafting is an image that they take from Shakespeare. And it's how Shakespeare eventually solves this 
issue of the man who won't reproduce. He just says, well, I'll just graft him onto my poems. <laughs> and, and so his beauty might live forever. Um, roughly, that's that's what I take him to be doing. Yeah, blistery skin graft is a lot more imperfect than 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 the kind of like perfect grafting onto a sonnet that you get in Shakespeare. Instead, blistery, like it's it's a bit like when organs are transplanted and there's a bit of rejection going on. There's a bit of like resistance from the body. There's scar tissue. There are. <laughs> There are bits which don't fall quite together. And I feel like there is like an acknowledgement of, you know, desire does not beget like this platonic perfect unity. It's actually like something that is like satured and has like a lot of like contrasting surfaces coming together and frictions. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a really good way of saying it. And I think you've talked before about like a kind of mutant subjectivity in the, in the first poem and that that feels like what we're getting on to and I, I like that reading of skin raft um that these two humans just sort of slammed together and I don't know who's riding this skin raft um but it seems it, it, it isn't so far from maybe what's being said of this the blistery skin graft the yeah, very 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 imperfect uh slightly unpleasant union and the line there, perhaps or perhaps to our all, some blistery skin graft, and we we are getting into that language of sort of, of grafting and and all and all, um, a w l is a kind of um, needle with a handle that's used for for grafting things, you know, grafting plants, not for grafting skin. Um, but I love the way, so it sort of goes into those shivers, that that's the pull, then it comes back to the blistery skin graft, which is sort of slightly um, horrifying, and then goes back to, we moved and moved together in the pool, one of these very simple, um, suggestively erotic lines that suddenly makes it feel to me like, you know, you you have this this mutant Frankenstein love, and you have this um, I don't know swimming in the swimming pool kind of love, and those are on a continuum. Like those are just the same thing. Moving in the pool is a blistery skin graft, but skin graft may as well be a pool at the same time as well. Yeah, Mal, can you help me out here? <laughs> the the aquatic imagery uh, is quite strong here, <laughs> and it's not too hard to detect what possible erotic overtones come with, like, you know, aquatic fluidity and whatever. Um, yeah, um, the way the way I read We Moved and Moved in the Pool, I was initially, when I was thinking of this poem as having to do a lot more with like the demand towards reproduction in Shakespeare, I was like, oh, well, that's just like quite a <laughs> seminal imagery in some ways. Like you, you get like, you know, the aquatic, the, the kind of wet and sticky substance of bodies moving together to create like an inheritance, but it seems to be separated from the rest of, of the text, right? It's like its own isolated line. And it's far away from like that grafting. Like it follows on from the grafting, but in the text, it's physically separate from that grafting. It seems like 
an aside, um, something additional to the grafting. And maybe there's a pleasure in moving together in the pool. Uh, and it's not like something that has to be like instrumentalized for reproduction. Um, you know, this wet act doesn't doesn't have to be get like, like one's perfect clone, which we'll get to in a bit. Right. Well, yeah, so cloning gets us into the next the next sort of chunk of text. So sort of a three three lines. So we've got a kind of sort of sestet. I think he's laying it out as um, too soon to ask for actual alterity. Best results in identical cloning. Best in the corneal clothing of our eyes. Um, and identical cloning. You know that is what. Shakespeare's sonnets are sort of weirdly <laughs> talking about. That's what he wants. is is not like reproduction. Actually, it is identical cloning. Um, and I don't know. Like, I wish I. I this is one of those moments where I wish I knew a bit about the science of cloning because I. But I don't know if Langley is summoning that as a sort of deep scientific concept or as just a a, a poetic poetic thing. Um, do you feel like you've got something to say about this this mutant clone? Is it is it that we're thinking about the the lover cloning the the other, or is it about reproduction of a different kind? Uh, is it about producing desire? I find the language of cloning quite interesting because that is Shakespeare's desire, even if he probably doesn't have like the language we have around cloning and the scientific specificity around it but he does want this man to like reproduce himself identically as his own son and his own son and to sort of like beget this this thing um whereas yeah whereas i don't know cloning you can't clone plants like when you grow from like a little shoot of a plant. Uh, the sapling you grow from that will be like genetically identical to the parent plant. Uh, but grafting, uh, yeah, and when you graft a sapling, like the the sapling will be identical to like its parent plants, but the rootstock will be identical to its parent plant. So yeah, um, there are ways to clone plants that are fairly easy and well known. Um, is cloning what they end up doing? Um, I, I I don't quite know how what to make of this line. Best results in identical cloning. It comes after too soon to ask for actual alterity. So maybe it's saying it's too soon to like sexually reproduce. Uh, maybe the best results are like these cloning things, which stop short of reproduction because biologically yeah cloning is you don't need sexual reproduction to clone um it comes before all this stuff around like you know flowers and insemination and all that stuff so cloning is in some ways the simpler procedure and the best <laughs> and the easier option and maybe it's the option without too much commitment but I don't know. I think these are the most difficult lines for, for, from the poet to get anything out of. And my knowledge of biology might be mistaken, as avid a gardener as I want to be. And, and okay, I I agree that they are 
that on this reading, you know, I'm realizing that they are difficult and important. Um, and maybe the, the corneal clothing of our eyes, you know, maybe that's the kind of cloning that we're talking about is that actually, you know, the, the, the perception of, of the other, yeah, you know, you're not going to get any better than that. Um, that's still a clone. That's not the, the other themselves that you're possessing, but, um, the corneal clothing of our eyes. Well, look, let, Let's not get stuck on that too much because we've got a nice sort of question to finish with where he says, can't we start cruel from the self-fed burn of such our sweet and simple fuel as uncontracted subjects? And we'll be easily distracted by the idea of uncontracted subjects. So subjects that aren't signed up to a, to, a, to a marriage or to a, um, a deal of any kind, um, but as subjects who aren't limited in any way, maybe subjects who've got a kind of shared skin graft, skin raft kind of arrangement, uh, subjects who are in a, in a pool um, together. We could easily get distracted by that. What's the, what's the true emphasis here now? Yeah, um, I like sweet and simple feel. And I like this idea of like cloning being the simple thing, but like the sexual reproduction being like the harder thing. And yeah, um, if, if you're cloning, if you're sweet and simple feel outside of a contract, you do... You, do you <laughs> I guess it puts you in like some realms of like leisure sex uh, <laughs> and like pleasure. Um, I don't know. It's it's like it might be trying to imagine like <laughs> itself outside of a marital situation um, where marriages are established in law as, <laughs> as also as a form of inheritance and a form of like passing down wealth but what is this sweet and simple desire that comes before a marriage or around a marriage or maybe complements or destroys the marriage um but yeah that's just one gloss on it and i'm taking contract to be the marriage contract but it could be many other things yeah, I, I like I, I like the emphasis on sweet, sweet and simple fuel. So, so moving on from uh, self-substantial fuel in in the Shakespeare poem to to sweet and simple fuel, and you know, there's just something so sort of banal in that language, sweet and simple. Um, you know, that sweet and simple love we had when we swam in the pool in Costa del Sol. In, in in our holidays last year, <laughs> um, it's disarming, and uh, I don't know, but I like it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting how like what this is doing to a source material. So like Shakespeare's lines is fits thy light's flame with self substantial feel making a famine where abundance lies. Uh, these lines are start krill from the self-fed burn of such our sweet and simple fuel. Um, it's, it's kind of changing self-substantial for self-fed. And the, the, 
the idea of the famine that Shakespeare introduces from like this self-burning up of like passion or eroticism that doesn't go into reproduction. Shakespeare presents the results of that as a famine, as a great loss to the world. Whereas like this eroticism here seems to be self-feeding, like a sweet and simple feel that is like self-feeding and kind of spreads. And I think once again, we're back to this idea of like abundance versus scarcity, like this kind of like erotic abundance that that uncontracted subjects have uh, to like reproduce, well, not reproduce, but like take pleasure in each other. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I guess what's, what's nice here or what's useful is, is that pleasure seems to be something that's quite hard won, um, that it's, as as sweet and simple as pleasure is and it is it is also something that you know come come comes from quite a complex uh, set of interactions of bumping of of tapping of uh you know of, of cutting and twisting even of grafting um so and, and and whereas maybe shakespeare for shakespeare the result of that is or or the idealized result of that is the the, um, the the child that comes from procreation, even though that's kind of just a, a cover for what he, what he really wants. Um, here, there's more of an embrace of that that difficult process, just leading to pleasure, and we don't have to contract ourselves into a child um, to to access that pleasure. Yeah. And yeah, and and you just said contract ourselves into a child, and I this just came into my mind. Um, contraction as like the opposite of elongation, and then we're back into like this kind of erectile imagery. <laughs> like uncontracted subjects are erect subjects <laughs> in in some other way. So it might be. You know, there are layers of sex to this that I'm just finding out on the spot. And yeah, I will say that these poems are very horny and they arguably fuck, as we say in our reading group. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they, they are pulling off that feat. <laughs> okay, but, I, but just as you started saying that, I thought what you were going to say was like birth contractions <laughs> so that's the like the the least the least horny kind of oh yeah contraction okay now that that's an, uh, <laughs> yeah that might be like the and that maps quite well onto like this idea of like uncontracted as being away from <laughs> birth contraction and being like away from like the marriage contract and the demand that one reproduce and have a child Naturally, I went for the more <laughs> for the more sexual image, but that's that's fine. I think it's all here, and I think part of what makes the poems enticing is like how playful they are, with how like desirous they are. Play, play, playful but difficult, and I think I I like both of those things together. That um, you know, I'll take playfulness when it's 
doing some serious work. Yeah, and it's kind of drawing you in, isn't it? Into like that thing about like interpreting <laughs> signals and interpreting other people's like actions, reaction, touch, like the 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 sounds that a knee makes when you touch it, <laughs> like. All that stuff is being brought into play here in like this 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 kind of erotic drama, and I really enjoy that. So it 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 feels like, you know, I think we we set off today really hoping to cover, like lots of ground and like look at more of the poems and really sort of see some of the more of the dynamics, but maybe part of the pleasures of of these texts is in in. I don't know their their ability to 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 distract to 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 draw us in to use your phrase, um, and to 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 offer so much while while declining to offer that as well. Maybe we could just re- quietly read Critchley and Langley one last time, and then we can call it a day. Yeah. So this is. The, the the sonnet contracted to thine own bright eyes from from brightest beams falls out desire and to prompt our heads ripening not bumping below bliss clear eye and lip drops and angling pulls out the love contract but never would sign about lust grasp it a no-go see him for dust the cut the little twist, the ungrasp, all intricately bound in him, around him, over. Never a backward thought or behind, pulled by other things, is better and out of sight. Likes which thistle-like require no constant. Change without light wins. Objects are not people, but at the start who realizes, ha! <laughs> And Langley's response. You tap for an outset. And startled, yes, you get meniscus hop, high slung to pop, eager and up, clasped at your fingertips. And it is ripe hot. And unexpected. But can't stop to send out shivers, shivers on the surface, as teardrops hit the rips and send me down scattered too soon, perhaps to overall some blistery skin graft. We moved and moved together in the pool. Too soon to ask for actual alterity, best results in identical cloning, best in the corneal clothing of mine eyes. Can't we start cruel from the self-read burn of such our sweet and simple fuel as uncontracted subjects? Times have changed So clear your head May be a lesson to some